Everyone, welcome to Life of Brian. Woohoo! Dot dot dot. Manix, that is Brian Manix, live from the pent, live from the penthouse club on the Gold Coast. Here's Brian. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here today. It's a beautiful 23 degrees. Uh, it's sunny, surfios, paradisios, and the chicks are digging it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by that you mean the Kentucky Fried Chicks, the ones you've been. Uh, uh, Posting on Facebook and, and social media about your eating habits, they haven't improved. Funny you should mention that. There's some KSC, as you can see, oh, in the fridge there. So very nice. there, you, there you go. Now I'm going well. And how's yourself? I'm good. Thank you very much, Mr. Mannix. Kind of you to ask. We have a massive show coming up. We have one of the biggest recording stars ever produced in this country. Ever produced we, in this country. We do indeed. And um, gee, be cashed up, I reckon. They're about to tour. Uh, uh, 47 years on the road. Goodness gracious me. We're talking about there was only one band you could be talking about that's still around in its not its original lineup, but in its uh, most famous lineup uh, after 47 years Air Supply. Air Supply, one of the first Australian bands to have all those top ten hits in America. Yeah, oh, they really they, they paved the way for so many people. They came kind of on the back, I guess, of of the Seekers and Sister Janet Mead and and uh, a little bit of LRB had, had sort of crept in there. Yeah, but, but then they went. They went whooshka. They did. So Russell Hitchcock's going to join us to have a chat. Lovely fella. Had a terrific chat with him about all sorts of things, about the songs that they've recorded that he did like and didn't like and people they've met, met and places they've that toured. he didn't and, like and did like. Yes. No. <laughs> yes. All sorts of things. So that's coming up. Uh, oh, look, we've got another one of those interviews I did by myself with a comedian, but for a totally oh. different reason. This was because it was a very early Saturday morning uh, interview with Jimmy Carr, who's about to tour as well uh, from 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown. He's hysterically funny. He's a really good fellow, so you'll catch up with that. And at the end of the show, I've got a surprise for you, Brian. Well, I love a surprise, Kev. Um, I'll wait with bated breath to <laughs> and anticipation to uh, see what your lovely surprise is. No surprises about our fabulous podcast partners, though. They are absolutely oh. top of the range, the people to talk to, fix your driving up, help your family members become better drivers, have a safer family. That's Murcott's Kev. That's the one. I reckon the number would be one three hundred triple five five seven six. Beautifully done. And you can also get them on uh, Murcott's EDU. You do that bit, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> Murcott's.edu.au. You almost got there. Almost got there. I'll get there next week. I'll yeah, get there no, they're terrific week, yeah. people. They are, they're great people to deal with. They're professional. They know what they're doing and they'll help you out. They'll, they'll, they'll you know, the problem solving with your driving will be done like that. Click. And as we mentioned in other uh, episodes too, uh, if you're a keen, you know, PlayStation racing car kind of person on the PlayStation, it will improve your uh, your PlayStation driving as well because you you right you drive on the right racing lines and all of that, and so yep. you know it's good for PlayStation as well as for road safety. Yes, all of the above. Uh, so there's uh, no excuse. One three hundred five 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 seven six. That's their number. Let's get to a uh, man who sold millions of records all around the world. Russell Hitchcock joins us. Yeah, right. I'm, Alfred's coming in later too. Isn't he? <laughs> 
So how uh, are you? Are you match fit for the uh, for the big tours now? Well, we've been doing it for so long. Um, in fact, this year was our forty seventh year on the road. So, apart from the COVID break, which really screwed things up a bit, um, and we had a, a break uh, recently. Um, we're always doing it. So we typically, until we go overseas, which will include Australia at the end of the year um, and the Philippines and uh, some dates in Latin America, uh, we usually leave on Wednesday or Thursday, play Friday, Saturday, come back Sunday, um, you know, and repeat as necessary. You never have, the good thing is you never have to unpack your suitcase. <laughs> just, just wash your undies and T-shirts and... Throw them back in, you know. <laughs> yeah, or, or not, depending on how you're feeling on any given week. There you go. <laughs> hey, uh, I, I was in radio in Brisbane in, in, in that mid part of the 70s when, when you know, CBS records, when Johnny Saxon and Dennis Hanlon bought in uh, Love and Other Bruises and, and we went, wow, it's, it's a hell of a sound. But I didn't think yeah. I'd be talking to you in 2022 and still the same the same people involved in the band the same I mean the same ethos everything is except you're incredibly incredibly successful. Well, you know, we we uh, we talk about it often during interviews and certainly we had the songs because uh, Graham's such a great songwriter and we had a lot of luck at our side obviously getting to tour with Rod Stewart in 77. Um, but, you know, we really had to start again in 1980 uh, when Lost in Love hit worldwide. Um, but, you know, we were lucky. We had that uh, string of, you know, seven top five consecutive songs, which is a, is a blessing, especially in a show, because um, everybody knows every song in the show practically. Yeah. Um, we've, we've managed to... Uh, to keep our standards very high in, in, in concert. Um, I don't think there's a venue or a production company would, that would say we're nothing but nice to deal with, which is also a lot of, a lot of acts don't appreciate that. You know, you have to be nice. Well, you don't have to be nice. But if, you're not <laughs> not, if you're not nice, they don't ask you back. Um, and we have a legion of fans all over the world. I think we're up to like um, 3 million followers on Facebook now, so... It's been a blessing, uh, but we work hard at it, certainly. Yeah, no, you do. I mean, I, I thought the average is about 140, 150 gigs a year, which is which is an extraordinary yeah. amount uh, for one year, let alone for 47 years. Well, you know, we, we used to joke uh, that we, we thought we'd be good for five years maybe in Australia um, and that would be it for us. But uh, here we are talking to you, as you said, in 2022. Yeah. Um, uh, Russell, Brian Mannix, Brian Mannix, Russell Hitchcock. Hello, yep. Russell. How are you? Good to see you. Good to see you. Really good. And thanks for doing this. It's terrific. Of course. Now, apart from the, yeah. the fact that you both supported Rod Stewart in the early days of your careers, mm. you two run across each other much over the years or not? Not really, no. I can't no. say, unless I was too drunk to remember, but... Um, <laughs> Me too. Which is, <laughs> which is highly possible, but um, no... No, they were successful, uh, Kev, and, uh, you know, <laughs> I was just me. <laughs> <laughs> 47 years and, and uh, allegedly uh, I, I see you reckon you've never had a blue with, with Graham. Is is that because you have defined roles and you know you know what you want to do in the group and he knows what he wants to do? Well, that's it primarily. I mean, I, can't, I couldn't write a song if you paid me and uh, I don't want to do that because I can't and he doesn't want to be out front. So we don't step on each other's toes. 
our personalities, even though they're very similar, are different. He lives in the mountains on a big property in Utah and I live in LA and the Burbs. You know, we, we agree musically on everything. It's one of those another things that's a blessing to us. Um, I'd sing anything he wrote. If he, if he gave me the phone book and said I wrote this, I'd sing it. <laughs> <laughs> It'd probably make it sound good too. <laughs> and, you know, we weren't kids when we got into the business. So we were, uh, being from Australia and England, uh, respectively, uh, you can't have a big head really for too long because your family or somebody's going to knock you down and say, get with the program. Yeah. So I think we've always been, you know, pretty humble people and I don't want to be any different and, and I can't be. I'm too old for that now. You've never, have you never written a song or are you saying that you've written songs and no. they're, they're just, they just don't work or not? I've never written a song. I've written a few poems that sucks, but, uh, <laughs> and I gave them to Graham to see if he could do anything with them. And he was very, uh, what's the word? Diplomatic. Diplomatic's a good word. He said, yeah, I don't think, you know, this is for us. And I'm quite happy with that, you know. It's a really good question, Kev. You basically just asked him, so are you a shit songwriter? <laughs> That's really what the question is. Uh, um, I know be- if I. If I was being interviewed, I'd love to have a question like that thrown at me. That's fantastic. Well done, Kev. Well, Brian, you're a shit songwriter. <laughs> Thank you, Kev. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> there's, there's two of us in the room. There's three of us. Don't worry about that. Um, when, 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 oh, Graham, Kev, you've written some, you've written some great songs, <laughs> Kev. Don't, don't put yourself down. <laughs> when, when Graham walks into the into the room with a with with a song, you know, one of one of the great songs that he's written over the years. Do you know immediately? Um, I think so. I mean, I told him we we were dead in the water in Australia in '77 when we got back from the Rod Stewart tour and couldn't get enough money to pay everybody to work, so we didn't. And uh, <laughs> so we Graham went to Adelaide um, and hung out there for a month or so, and I, I did some commercials in, uh, you know, for American Express and Maxwell House or whatever I could do. He called me and he said, I've written some songs. Do you want to come out and have a listen? So I did. The first thing he played me was Lost in Love, and I said to him straight away, this is, this is a monster, I'm telling you right now. And included in those songs was All Out of Love and a couple of others. I can't remember them. But that stuck out to me, uh, you know, like the proverbial dogs things. <laughs> and uh, it was going to be a hit. I knew that. Yeah, well, it's you know, a classic song. Oh. A good session for him to come up with, you know, All Out of Love and uh, the other one, uh, you know, in one, in one one month. You know, you should have given him a month off and Adelaide more often. Uh, obviously it paid <laughs> off very well. So what happened next? So you got the songs, then what happens? Got the song. We released um, Lost in Love in Australia through uh, Wizard Records, I think, and Tony Hogarth, and uh, that was a huge hit. So we, we did, I think we did Countdown every other week for a year or so, and eventually the record, I don't know how it got to America, but somebody uh, put it on the desk of Clive Davis at Arrow. He just went crazy for it and, in fact, called the both of us in uh in our homes. I think Graham was in, in, in Khan at the music publishing thing trying to sell some songs and I was at home and he said, you guys got to get to LA straight away. We have to finish this record. And offered us a record contract when we arrived in town. So This is the off- Clive Davis that we see, you know, Netflix docos on and stuff, who was one of the most powerful men in the music industry oh, in that, at that stage. Ab- absolutely. I mean, I've been in the mus- uh, record business for 
you know, 46 years now and I've never met anybody like him to, to put people with songs and find material. If You know, if you don't have it, if you have great songs, he's more than, uh, he's the first one to say that's a great song. Just phenomenal guy and a great bloke too. So did you have to do that, you know, like a lot of bands when they go overseas, you know, that's to crack America, they're touring their brains out, you know, like, um, you know, that you get on a tour and you just tour for a year. Or, or well, so did, was that, is that what happened with you guys? Yeah, we, we did that. On the strength of Lost in Love, uh, we booked a, a, a tour in colleges, which was kind of a captive audience at the time, and we, we were on the road for a year. When we had the two or three hits back-to-back, we were touring 10 months a year on a bus, um, you know, playing all over the place, and, you know, that was what you did. Um, so certainly... I mean, we've been accused of being an overnight success, and to a degree we were because we went from um, Jesus Christ Superstar two years later to having, a year later to having Love and Other Bruises, a year later to tour with Rod Stewart, and two years later having a worldwide hit. So, But once we got into the into to that uh, cycle, uh, we never stopped touring. We still haven't. We've, we've, not a, we've not had a year off on the road since, uh, since we began. Well, because one of the things I I find when I talk to people, like I, I remember speaking to Steve Gilpin from MySex, and he was saying that it's so hard, America, trying to coordinate. You know, it's hard enough to get all the states in Australia to play your song at the same time. Yeah. Um, but he said America, it's it's twice as hard. He said that MySex, you know, they were huge in Texas, but they just couldn't get all of the states to you know jump on board with them and. So that, I imagine that's one of the toughest things about America is that you, you're trying to get Texas and you're trying to get North Carolina and all these places on board, and that means that you, you're touring your brains out. And a lot of bands, from what I understand, they get lost in that touring thing and they never quite, you know, make it happen. So, you know, well done to you guys. But, um, you know, it well, must that, have been inc- incredibly difficult. I mean, it is. It's still very arduous. But, I mean, if you figure in the beginning... And I've been in meetings when we first began with Clive Davis and he got everybody from every key market and he said, this song will be a hit or else. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he, Andy. He didn't disagree with him and he was always right. That's another thing. We, we did a couple of songs that I didn't care for at all. Even the Nights of Better I didn't really care for and two less lonely people, I thought they were corny. And I said, you know, I, I can't really get into these, Clive. And he said, well, you have to record them because he negotiated with our then managers uh, the right to put three tracks on every album, unbeknownst to us. He said, either you record it or there's no album. So we said, okay, we'll record it. And, of course, then it's a hit. And he says, I told you so. <laughs> should, should listen to me all the time. And you can't argue with that kind of success and his – I don't know, feeling about a song and who should sing it and whatever, you know, it's great. But once again, it, it takes a toll on your your personal life on the road, being away for three or four months at a time, um, only seeing hotels and restaurants and not getting a lot of sleep and stuff. It's, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not for everybody, let me tell you that. Radio mm. loved you in America though, didn't they? That was, that was one of the things that really did help. Radio adored yeah. playing your stuff. Yep, they. I mean, we were all over the place. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing our our songs, and uh, we're very grateful for that uh, because for five years we were like the golden boys of radio in the US. 
and uh, couldn't do anything wrong. But, you know, as everything happens, it, it's great, and then all of a sudden it isn't. So. But we had, the, we had the track record of having great shows. We have the track record of, of having so many songs successful that uh, we really couldn't be stopped, you know. So we just kept doing our thing. And, I mean, we've made, th- I think, 25 albums or CDs or whatever you want to call them these days. Uh, radio won't play them anywhere in the world. So, you know, we want to hear Lost in Love, but we have this great song. No, we want to hear Lost in Love. You know? <laughs> no, not complaining. But uh, it's a bit of a drag, you know. You guys, um, okay, Sister Janet Mead had a number one in America. Did Had LIB had success in America before you or did, were you guys before LIB? Yeah, that's that's funny you should mention that, that we uh, – they had success. They filmed a video for Reminiscing and uh, it was filmed at a hotel in Melbourne somewhere at the top of Collins Street or Burke Street, one of those. And a friend of mine shot the video and I was out of work and he said, you want to come along and hang out for the day and go for the sandwiches and move things and stuff? I said, sure. He said, I'll give you $100. And I said, sounds great to me. So I worked on that video and I was talking to Beeb during one of the breaks and Lost in Love had been released and he said, what are you doing here, you know? And I said, well, we're still just waiting for it to happen. You know, it's all go and we're waiting for the phone call. And, of course, I didn't know what was going to happen with the song, but uh, it's quite interesting that I that I worked on that video and, of course, they their success preceded us and I think that helped a lot that they were Australian and we were too. It, uh, we kind of got on their coattails for a little bit there, you know. Yeah, because you 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 you're pioneers of you know cracking America. Like there was there's like LAB, Sister Janet Mead, and you guys, and that was pretty much <laughs> it at that point. Um, yes, you know, and then you know in excess and men at work came along later, and that, but you know you guys got to kick the door down for yep. you know for in excess and uh, men at work and that. So, and Rod Stewart did he have much to do? The Rod Stewart management have much to do with the the American side of things. Um. Not really. I mean, our manager, uh, our managers at the time were very close with Rod's manager, um, John Reed. I oh, know Billy Gaff, his name was. They got us the tour with their connection with with Rod's manager, and he was uh, as helpful as he could be to us on the road. But we did really, we had one song in Australia that was successful, and we toured on. I mean, we we played it for fifteen twenty minutes in front of him for three or four months. So we did our shot to try and make an impression. Um, and I think we still get from time to time people say, oh, we saw you, at, you know, opening for Rod in 77, which is always a compliment. But I don't think it did that much for us. It gave us a lot of confidence, I'll, I'll say that, because we watched him every night and saw how he handled audiences and we saw the production side of things, you know, sound and lighting and we learn a lot about the business side of stuff to how to tour um, and how to do it successfully. Um, so from that point of view, I think he was a great teacher, but it wasn't until Clive got hold of the record that things really took off in a big way. When did, uh, when did you know you had a voice that was, that was you know, uh, going to be something that you, you would still be using in, in 2022 as, as uh, you know, that you had such a voice, such a, a unique sounding voice, such a voice with, with great range and all those things? When did you know that? Well, I, never, I never thought that for a long time because I, I went into show business blind. I auditioned for Superstar and got into that and I worked in an office before then so I had no clue and it wasn't until the musical director of that show uh, 
Michael Carlos said, I want to see you after rehearsals. And I thought I was in trouble, as we all do, going to the principal's office. <laughs> and uh, he said, I want you to sing some notes for me and went up the piano and got to, you know, pretty high notes. And, and he said, I want your audition for the understudy for Jesus and Judas. And, of course, I said, you're out of your mind. But anyway, he said, no, you're going to do it, so you have no choice. So I got to sing the role of Judas, I think, was John English probably 50 times. I played the role of Jesus once and Harry Miller was at the show. Can I swear on, on yeah, your, you Yeah, absolutely. Please do. And, it's just essential. And, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, he came backstage after the show and, uh, and he said, Russell, you've got a great voice. But nobody wants to see Jesus with a fucking afro. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days. He, he uh, said, you're out, you're out as Jesus. But I got to play it once. But, uh, Judas is a better role anyway, isn't it? Well, that's the lead role. Yeah. So, but, um, you know, I, I kind of got a lot of confidence, a lot more confidence in my voice doing that part. And, of course, when... We recorded uh, Love and Other Bruises and Lost in Love and I don't know whether it was planned to jump the octave at the end, but I just did that and it's been with us ever since. So I, d- I really don't like talking about my voice, uh, actually. So, Oh, sorry. I was, uh, was going to ask, did you, did you surprise yourself with what you could do? Was that a yeah. constant kind of in the early days a surprise to you? Yeah. yeah, it was. It was. I mean, I didn't. I didn't know music. I can't read music. I never played guitar or anything. I just listened to records and sang along with them. And when Graham's, you know, sent songs, I just listened to them and did my thing. Because you're both big Beatles but, nuts, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I saw them in 64 in Melbourne. In fact, I just saw McCartney two weeks ago in Baltimore, which was another mind-blowing thing for me to having sitting there thinking, I saw this guy in 64. And now I'm seeing him again in 2022. Amazing. You didn't have a backstage moment with McCartney like you had with Robert Plant, did you? No, 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 no. That's, that's, I would say that that's, unless you're Mrs. McCartney, you probably haven't got a chance in hell. Who knows? But not, not us. We, we bought the VIP package and we, we were like four of us in the front and, that was awesome, but uh, your Robert Plant story I saw uh, in an interview that that you did uh, meeting it was it in the, a gig you did in India. Yeah, we got. Uh, I think it was two thousand and five or not, maybe ninety five. I can't remember, but we got an award for being you know the fabulous band in the universe. We went over there, and Robert Plant was there, and he played with Brian May and Roger Taylor. Uh, Brian Adams was there. The people from. Uh, Macarena were there, a bunch of other acts, a lot of local, a lot of local acts. I, we got there, you know, the, the time we were supposed to be there, and went backstage, and all the all the dressing rooms were just pipe and drape, you know, a curtain with your name on it, and that was it. And I saw Robert Plant, and I freaked out because you know he's Robert Plant. <laughs> and uh, as as I was walking past him, he was surrounded with the reporters, and he actually said, "Excuse me," to them, and he said, my, put, "Put his hand out," and said, "My name's Robert Plant. It's a pleasure to meet you." So I was God then for that one day. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a James Bond moment, isn't it? Uh, plant, yeah. uh, plants yeah. the name. Yeah. Robin yeah. Plants. <laughs> Lovely guy. And I flew back from uh, India through Hong Kong with Rod- Roger Taylor. We sat, we were seatmates and 
we got incredibly drunk you know had some great stories to share so it was it was a that trip was a wonderful trip and you know it's indelibly burned into my memory great times uh, were you a drummer uh, at, uh, at yeah. one start yeah when was that when yeah. were you a drummer i was 16 i think i played with a some friends of mine and uh they're all from malaysia you're going to love this name for a band they were from malaysia and i was australian so we were the co-Asians. Co-Asians. <laughs> we used to play in uh, restaurants mostly. And from there I, I joined another band uh, with a school friend. We were called the 19th Generation after the Who song and the Who song. 19th Ner- Oh, Stones, 19th Nervous Breakdown and yeah. My Generation. So we used to play in pubs uh, all over the place. But no- nothing that would have eventually eventuated in anything. I didn't sing. Hardly ever then I sang maybe a song or two. Good grief. Oh. Those blokes in those bands must be sitting around now thinking, he w- w- we had him playing drums. Why didn't one of you dickheads let him sing? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I didn't do it. I sang backgrounds and maybe, uh, what did I used to sing? Louie, Louie, oh, baby, we got to go. That was about my vocal range then, half a quarter of an octave. Wow. Do you do anything to keep your voice in Nick or is it just a natural thing? No, well, we work so much that I, nobody – we don't rehearse ever unless we're putting a new song in the show because we we're, we work three or four times a week. And when I'm not at work, I, don't, I hardly speak. And when I do, it's like this. I speak very lowly and softly and, you know, that's my, that's my secret. <laughs> yeah, no. Where events in America do you like playing the most? Oh, that's that's tough. You know, we're we're super popular on the east coast. We play a lot of sheds. You know, there, you know uh, there's a roof over the stage, but seats and then lawn at the back there. You know, we're still doing the business, and um, I love to play. I like to play New York and then get out because I don't like New York. Mm-hmm. We were supposed to play the Hollywood Bowl last year for the first time with Michael Bolton, but COVID screwed that up. So we're trying to rearrange that. Is my wife in the background here? What, baby? Oh, yeah. There's a phenomenal gig in San Diego called Humphreys and it's built, the stage is built in the courtyard of a hotel. It's a permanent stage. So you can go there and get a hotel room, watch the concert from the balcony or buy a seat uh, and we do great business there. I think that holds maybe 2,000 or something. Oh, wow. And we we go back there once a year and it's, you know, the boats pull up and have their drinks and whatever they're doing on the boats and listen to it. It's phenomenal. Yeah, down great, on Mission great, Beach? Yeah, Mission Bay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You do Vegas too. Is Ve- is Vegas fun or is Vegas like a just a, a you know sausage factory of, of We we did it uh for twenty two years straight and uh we played a hotel called the Orleans, which is off the strip. It's a really small theatre, a thousand people. Uh we used to play f- Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then a new uh a company uh called Boyd Gaming bought a gazillion casinos in America. And uh, and we used to play the Hard Rock in Biloxi three nights. Um, and in their infinite wisdom, they said, uh, "We're only going to give you one night now. You have to you have to prove yourselves." And our manager said, "Well, we really don't. So thanks for the invitation." Now the well, Australian tour. I want to talk about that. You've got so many hits and so many songs. And how do you how do you work the set list out for when when we're going to see you later in the year? Well, we'll probably include love and other bruises but that's about any and any any new things we do a couple of new things but you know the hits in australia were the same 
making love out of nothing at all, even the nights are better, Here I Am, Sweet Dreams, um, and the love songs, the one that you love, all out of love. <laughs> the love, love. We're the love guys. <laughs> love gods. <laughs> now, how's the tattoo library going? Oh, I just got another one started yesterday. It looks pretty rough, but it's going to be an octopus. Now, expi- explain yeah. your tattoo uh, love for, to us. Well, I got my first one when my daughter was born, and you can't see it anymore. It's so small because I was too scared to get a tattoo. A big one, and the guy said, "You're going to regret this, not getting it. You know, a bigger one." So then I, uh, my girlfriend was, she was tattooed from the back of her neck to the back of her knees with Japanese stuff, koi fish and samurai warriors and stuff. And I, and I thought, I thought they looked great and and beautiful. And I just got another one, and then another one, and then after you get through, you think, screw it, I'm in. My daughter's mother said. I said I was going to get another tattoo and she said, why don't you get Peter Pan because you would never grow up. And I said, that's a good idea. So I got I got Peter Pan up there. Oh, cool. Ah, very good. And uh, I got a bunch of other stuff. have my wife's signature now on my arm and some Japanese stuff. I just get a vibe and then I'll go to the guy and say, can you do this? And he says, yeah, sure. Yeah. Do, do you always go to the same guy? I do now, yeah. He's excellent yeah. and it's painful. But uh, he's very good. The most painful ones I ever got was these on my finger. Yeah. Fingers. Oh. I thought, you know, there's a bit of meat there. So, <laughs> but I actually, I, cor- I cried when I <laughs> when I got those. It was so painful. And the the and, jewelry, you collect jewelry as well, or you you love jewelry? Yeah. Is the, the other passion you have? Yeah. Always that that uh, thing for jewelry. I've, I've got tons of stuff I can't wear. This is I got very cool wedding rings. We celebrated our anniversary yesterday. Oh, congratulations. Oh. So I got the little right there. But my wife, Carrie, is gorgeous and she gives me beautiful stuff. Uh, you're obviously a very lucky oh. man and in a very nice place at the moment, I gather. And my life is, yeah. uh, it couldn't be any better right now. You know, I'm, I'm. Uh, you don't look for the end of, you know, when you're going to stop. But we were talking today, Carrie and I, and she said, do you see yourself doing this when you're 80? And I said, I'm not really. You know, but Paul McCartney's 80 and he's doing it and Mick Jagger's 79. But uh, I don't know. You know, we just, we never put a limit on it and we're still kicking ass and taking names, so why stop? <laughs> 47 <laughs> years. Do, is, 50 a, is 50 a magical number that you want to get to and then you might have that conversation? Yeah. We want to get there and we'll see how we both feel after that, but I'm all for making it 50 years because that's, I mean, being here for as long as we have is a phenomenal achievement in in, in band oh. history. And to make 50 would be outstanding. Um, we have good friends in uh, the guys that play with America, uh, Jerry Beckley and, and, and Dewey, and uh, I think they're 50 years this year. So we always have a go at them and say, we're going to catch up with you. So. <laughs> Hey, uh, thank you so much for your time. Looking forward to the tour in, uh, uh, you know, playing the Opera House and the Palais Theatre and all those all those places. Tickets are on sale now. So, uh, look, it's been bloody terrific catching up, Russell. Thank you so much for your time. Thank My you. pleasure. You guys are good blokes too. I appreciate your time. Take care, you guys.
Boy, oh boy, uh, haven't they had some massive, massive hit records? <laughs> big, big hit records. And he's got just one of the best voices of all time, hasn't he? Oh, look, they both do, I think. Um, and the way their voices work together is um, pretty, pretty special, um, pretty unique. So I, I reckon well, he's right when he said, you know, if Graham walked in with a and had written the phone book, uh, he'd sing it, and uh, you put those two, and it would it would sell. It would be it would sound fantastic. Their combination is unbelievable. Well, their new album is called The Yellow Pages, so <laughs> that's something to look for, forward to. Now, hmm. coming up now is a, a bloke who's just about to tour here uh, at the end of this year and early uh, next year. Is uh, one of uh, England's n- top stand-up comics. Seen here on the television on a show called Eight Out of Ten Cats Does Countdown, which is a really weird little show, but it's a great little show, very funny. His name is Jimmy Carr. I did this one on my own, not because you didn't like him. No, no, no. Because just while you say Jimmy Carr, Carr just reminded me that Murcotts one three hundred triple five five seven six. Okay, there you go. Okay, so this is <laughs> this is me talking to Jimmy Carr uh, in uh, in England in the early hours of the morning, uh, just about to uh, of course head out here for a, for a big big uh, stand up uh, comedy tour. And then after that, we're going to play a tape of me snoring in bed while you were doing the interview. <laughs> so that's something to look forward to as well. Exactly right. Hello? Hello, Jimmy. It's Kevin Hiller. You're calling from Melbourne, Australia. 
Oh well, I can't believe your luck. It's uh, Jimmy Carr off of uh, off of TV and comedy. Um, <laughs> what, what are we talking about? Like, um, I'm, I'm desperately shilling a show in uh, in Australia. Uh, now, are we just talking Melbourne shows? What are we talking? We're a national uh, sort of uh, availability show. We can talk about anything because you're here for going to be here for most of next year, aren't you? Well, I'm, I'm definitely. Uh, listen, I've always had this line. I'm dodging the winter. If you're going to travel from Europe to Australia. And I recommend everyone does at some point because it's great. But you've got to go in January, February, March because Europe at that time, Jan, Feb, March, cold, wet, windy, awful, frankly. Every day in Australia in that time is a milk. 44 and bloody hot. <laughs> Which is not something that the uh, the average uh, sort of, uh, you know, white-skinned, uh, pale-faced uh, Englishman is is sort of accustomed to. Well, it's... it's, uh, it's it's a strange one. I think we we have such an affinity for Australia. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of perfect mix for us. It's, you know, you get there and you travel so far and it's so familiar. It's like, it, it's perfect for me. It's almost like you, you kind of arrive and it, it's got a weird sense of deja vu of like, I remember the first time going, of going, well, I've come a long way and this is very different from home, but everyone gets every single joke. Like the sense of humour, there's, it's like, England turned up to 11. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is actually. It's, a, it's a really we, – we do share a sense of humour and a, a, lot of, a lot of British comedy that's never worked in America has always worked really well here. Well, it's, it's an odd thing as well. It's, like, it's, it's that thing of going, what's the defining characteristic of an Australian and a, and a British person? What do we share in common? And I think that thing of like the worst thing you could say about a person is he couldn't take a joke. Yep. I mean, listen, you know, he's a mass killer and he, he, you know, he's a mass killer. Well, we've all made mistakes. We couldn't take a joke. Oh, I don't like the sound of him. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you, do push the, you do push the edge with your comedy. Is that, is that something from day one that you've always wanted to do or is it something that is naturally occurring as part of the way you go about what you do? I mean, I've always, uh, I said it before, I'll say it again. PC at a comedy show is like having health and safety at the rodeo. <laughs> it's just not important to my job. And I think people realize my jokes come from the head. They don't come from the heart. And, you know, you leak. You're up there for two hours telling jokes. People have a sense of who I am as a person. And that's why they come back to the show. There's, there's nothing hateful in it. And it's, I mean, I guess it's edgy, but someone else drew the line, not me. So if I step over it, I'm mean, good luck. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, do you spend an enormous amount of time these days, uh, not explaining, but uh, sort of uh, justifying the jokes, or have you just gone these days, you know, stuff it, uh, you either like it or you don't? No, I'm... no, no. I, I, I think I think I could probably come up with a better term than stuff it. But no, I'm not I'm not apologising for jokes. They're jokes. You, you, you can't. You can't, like, you can't be changing your show in order to please people that aren't at your show. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my job now, like, I'm a fairly well-known comic. People, you know, would know who I am and you know, seen me on TV or YouTube or Netflix and or live, hopefully live. And they say, they come to the show or they don't come to the show. And it, I'm preaching to the choir. The people who choose to come and buy a ticket, you know, tickets to a show, it's not a cheap thing, right? It's a, it's a big deal to come and see someone live. You, and I was, I was bear this in mind, right? You, you like, there's movies I've watched and then you, you, you watch it again on a plane and you've forgotten that you've seen it, right? You never forget who you saw live. 
Yeah. You know, every every band, every comment you saw, like, it seemed like it's been there forever that you saw them. You've got to deliver on a live show. It's expensive. For a lot of people, it's like, oh, it's a lot of money. It's a big night out. You've got to deliver on that. A, the pressure is a privilege. And that dark sense of humor, that thing of like second guessing, oh, maybe this is, maybe this is a bit too much. Yeah, but if it's funny, I'm doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I watched the I watched the Dark Material uh, Netflix special the other night, and uh, and, and the, the the bit at the end where you do the career ending series of routines. I mean, I that, mean, it's good. I mean, some would say some would say a little bit Icarus like to fly so close to the sun. You know, I upset some people with some bits in that, but what what are you going to do? I mean, it's like I couldn't have set it up better to go look. This is the edgy stuff, but that's what people want. People, you know, love that bit of the show. They love the idea that this is transgressive. I think they also like the fact that, you know, in the live show that you come and see, there's stuff that we didn't put out, the stuff that goes a little bit further. Is there anything that is taboo? Do you have a, do you have a list that you will not go to, you will not make fun of? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think so. I, don't, I think that would be a, it would be a weird thing to... I had a friend that did that, that put out a message just saying, what can't you joke about? Yeah. And then got this massive array of oh, you can't do jokes about this or this or this or that, you know, whatever. And it's whatever's, whatever that, that particular cause that you have is. You know, if something has affected you, if something is triggering, and I understand and I'm empathetic to the idea someone might not want to hear a joke about it. Like, you know, you've got to kind of avoid comedy shows until you're over it then because I think laughing is, when you can laugh about something, it really, it, it slightly signals you've processed it and you're through it. I, I, so nothing's off limits, but uh, I understand some people have got certain sensitivities. Yeah. How uh, how has your comedy evolved since, you know, you did uh, your first couple of gigs, you didn't didn't get paid at all, you were kind of doing tryout situations, and now, of course, you, you're doing uh, sold-out tours around the I world. I mean, it's changing. It's changing now. I'm, I'm sort of endeavouring to become better. The last couple of years have been about writing, and I'm trying to write longer routines now. I mean, this is slightly inside baseball. This might be, you know, boring for people, but I'm trying to write longer routines between eight and 12 minutes long about something. So my love language is one-liners, but I'm trying to uh, apply myself to kind of go, right, well, let's write a bunch of one-liners coming at a subject from lots of different angles and put it together into a longer routine with a bit of a point to it. Uh, you know, just trying to kind of change up stylistically. So it's not all fast balls, but it's still mainly going to be fast balls. And I, I realize I have to, have to service my audience. I mean, if people come and see me live, I want there to be three big laughs a minute minimum. Wow. Not a bit. That's an enormous amount of pressure on you in terms to come up with the amount of material you have to for a, even a you know one hour show standing on stage with that amount of uh, you know one liners well, going bang bang bang. Well, That's a lot. A ca- couple of things there to pick you up on. Firstly, an hour isn't long enough. You need at least ninety minutes. And secondly, it's a lot of pressure. I, other than uh, compared to a real job, <laughs> right? There's, I mean. You talk, talk about pressure being a privilege. I mean, I'm a stand-up comic. I mean, my, my biggest problem in life is work is more fun than fun. That's my issue. <laughs> and, you know, people talk about, people talk about oh, there's a lot of pressure. You go, yeah, other than, other than the guy that mows the lawn. That's, <laughs> that guy is out there in the heat for eight hours a day. It, he just bought a ticket. He needs to be entertained. That's the pressure. Yeah, but a thousand, uh, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand people aren't sitting there going, "Well, that's a shitty uh, effort of uh, mowing the lawn. Get back and uh, you, you, give me something better than that." Ah, yeah. Well, you, you, you get, you know, you know what, you get used to it, and it's also that thing of like, 
it's never the first time. It's always like, I like to try new jokes at every show. So it kind of morphs and changes through the tour yeah. and it gets better. And it, you hone it and you, you know, maybe you leave some bits because you go, well, I've told that too many times and I'll leave that for a while. And you, you know, unless you're working up towards the special, you're not changing stuff and messing around and trying new bits and making it as fun as you can for the audience. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, when I come to Australia, I know I'll do 15 minutes of stuff about Australia when I'm there that I'll just write on the road and try and come up with some, you know, the, the, the local stuff, of yeah. course. Yeah. So, you, you, you know, you end up, there's always like interesting things to think about. It's such a great job, man. It's such a great job. So you don't miss the marketing department at Shell? I mean, listen, I worked for Shell. It's a very interesting life because I worked for Shell when they were the good guys. Uh, it was like genuine. I mean, it's, it's, you try explaining that to someone, you know, an eighteen-year-old now. I don't know. Sure, it used to be a nice company that you work for. It's now like saying you work for a tobacco company or drug cartel. It feels like <laughs> it, it's like wow, you work for who? What were they doing? I guess my job was to rape the planet. I guess. <laughs> um, I, I, I can't tell you. It was, it was like it was a different time. It's, uh, it's slightly odd. I mean, it does feel like a lifetime ago. I don't, I'm not a, a religious man. I don't have um, a, a tremendous kind of spiritual life. But, so I don't believe in an afterlife, but I do believe in a next life because it feels to me like that was a totally different existence and this is a different one. And I was saying it's a very kind of heartening thing because you go, you know, there'll be people reading this thinking, ah, you know, life is oof, it's hard at the moment. There's a next life. There's, there's, a, there's different phases you go through. Maybe the next one will be better. Better days ahead, I always think. Yeah. Uh, can I talk about the television show for, uh, for all the television shows uh, for just a moment? I'm, uh, we're a bit late to the party here in Australia with uh, 8 out of 10 uh, uh, countdown. Um, uh, how, how, does, how does that fit is that, in? Is that, I didn't realise that was playing over there. Is that, is that a thing in Australia? Um, yes, but it's it shows it shows here on SBS, which is our multi language channel, and it's uh, it sort of crept into the into the ethos, and it's sort of one of those shows that you discover and go, "What's this?" And you watch it and go, "Oh, it's bloody brilliant!" Um, and then it's it's well, it's, it's, a, it's a weird one. I've always saw that show. The great secret of that show is it's an easy watch. Yeah. Okay. You know, you watch you watch some things on TV. Like TV is naturally a passive medium, right? So. Some very heavy dramas or very involved shows, it's like, oh, wow, I need like half an hour off after that. That was, that was pretty heavy going. And ours is it's just a very easy watch. And it's also the great thing about Cats of Countdown, uh, certainly my experience of it, is it's, kind of, it's one of the few shows you can kind of watch with the family. We're a little bit rude on that show. Not really. It's within the bounds of TV rules. So it's kind of... Uh, you know, barring some comments I've made about glory holes, it's normally all right. <laughs> so it, you, it kind of, there's families that kind of watch it and you can play along as well, which is kind of fun. It, it, it works. I mean, it started off, we did it as an anniversary special for Channel 4 about 10 years ago. And we, we struggled to kind of, we thought well, we might be able to knock 40 minutes out. It's a silly idea. And then we've ended up, I think we've made 200 of them. We, we love doing it. And I, I love working with Susie and with, uh, John and with Rachel and uh, obviously, you know, loved working with Sean Locke, who's no longer with us, yeah. but um, I mean, it, he was absolutely fantastic. 
Yeah, and it's a, it's a really interesting show to watch in terms of the, the comics that come on it, the, the Bill Baileys of the world, and the, and most of the cast of Afterlife finish up as, as panellists on there as well, which is a really interesting thing for us to see here because we don't see them every week in stand-up things and shows in England. We just get to see them. Oh, yeah, well, well Joe, Joe Wilkinson and Roisin Connerty and, yeah, yeah, all my mates uh, on the show on the regular. Yeah, they're all they're kind of they're fantastic. I mean, that's one of the great joys of making, you know, uh, like being a stand-up comic is, you're kind of a lone wolf, right? Where my favorite comment on stand up comedians, my friend Alan Havey said, We're out for ourselves, but in it together. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of kind of beautiful, right? Really nice. And the thing about like T V shows like Cat Countdown is you kind of some people come through that show. So it's like the first T V they ever did was doing AI and Ten Cat. And you get to kind of bring them to the attention of others, which is it's one of the great joys. What will you do? Uh, I mean, you're going to be spending an awful lot of time here in Australia. What are you going to fill in your days and uh, and, and non-performance days doing? Non-performance days? Sorry. Are you? I, I don't know who you thought you were talking to. <laughs> this is me. I'm doing two shows a night, every night, for three months. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and frankly, nothing to me. Great. Gen- genuinely, I'll, I'll be, I love hanging out. I love just having a walk around the town centre. I love chatting to people and it's a different thing. Like you're not a tourist. When you're working in a town, yeah. it's kind of a different ethos. You know, you get something nice to eat. You know, I mean Melbourne especially, but I mean the whole the food scene in Australia is ridiculous. Like the best coffee in the world. I mean I, I would say maybe the best coffee I've ever had was in the grounds of Alexandria in Sydney. It's their Japanese drip coffee, twenty four hour drip. I'd come back to Australia just for that. That's worth the flight. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Hey, did you do some vocals on an Ed Sheeran song? Yes. Yeah, I did some backing vocals on uh, on Visiting Hours. I mean, I know Ed pretty well. I know Ed, you know, we, we hang out occasionally. But uh, my friend Johnny McDade is a songwriter who writes with Ed and was in Snow Control and a very close friend of mine. And he played me the song... In the, it's a very sad song. It's a song about uh, bereavement, and uh, he played it to me in the lockdown, and I was in a puddle. I mean, I really it got me. And he said, "You should be on this. You should you should do the backing vocals." So you know, as long as there's a PRS jack, I'll do anything for a friend. <laughs> so, what other hidden talents does Jimmy Carr have that we don't know about? Well, occasionally a bit of musicality. I've you know I've written a book. Uh, I'm sure I'll be shilling that when I'm out there. Uh, I wrote kind of a, in, in the lockdown, because everyone, every comedian was given an option in the lockdown, right? It was either do a podcast or write a book. That was it. Those were your options. And I wrote a book and I started, it started off as like they wanted a biography and it turned very quickly into a, a self-help book by stealth. Because my, my theory is that people that need self-help don't read self-help. <laughs> so, you know, men and women in their early 20s don't read self-help books. No one gets round to it till they're in their 40s. Yep. But actually, when you need it is when you're kind of setting off, really. And I thought, well, maybe my biography might sugar the pill by being... Because it's a slightly weird section of the bookstore, isn't it? Very earnest self-help. <laughs> I mean, Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, is one of the great books. But eh, there's no dick jokes in it. Mine's got plenty <laughs> of dick jokes, and it's got all the same information. <laughs> all the same guidance. Uh, uh, well, what more could a man ask for, or woman? Yeah, quite right. Exactly. Acting, is is acting been something that you've ever wanted to, to go down the track of and do or not? 
I think I might do a little bit in the next couple of years. I quite fancy it, but I've always been, I've been kind of busy with, I've got a fairly busy schedule doing stand-up. So it's the, it's always that thing in life of opportunity cost, right? Mm. And I think we live in a, in a specialist economy and I've got a really strong, what would you say, uh, a, a very strong view on this. We live in a specialist economy and we do best as individuals when we specialize. So you find your edge in life, find what you do best, and then lean into that. And what I do best is stand-up comedy. Now, I could probably finagle an acting role in a sitcom because that's who I am and, you know, comedy status or whatever. I'll probably get a go at that. But there's great actors out there and their edge is acting. Mine is writing jokes and performing them. So there's a big part of me that just thinks, stick to your knitting. You have to get so successful at one thing, you get to do everything else. And you lose sight of the thing that you you do best. I've I've got friends that comedians I haven't done stand-up tours in a decade because they've been too busy doing all these other things that came along. And all those other things were were distractions. Yeah. And you, you clearly love that, that, that the rush of being on stage and the satisfaction that you get of being a stand-up comedian. That's obviously something that feeds, feeds you, your being. Yeah, and it's, it's, it is that thing of like, it's a task without end. If you think about tasks yeah. that bring real happiness in life, they're tasks that don't have an end. Task with an end can be depressing. So being a comic is a task for that end. I'm trying to be better, right? I, I'm, I'm not one of the greats. If you drew a Mount Rushmore of comedy tomorrow, the four greatest ever stand-ups, I, I, wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be fit to, to, to visit the monument, never mind be up there. But I've got a shot. I've got a shot at that title. And, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I've got plenty of years left. I've got plenty of tours left. I'm getting better. I'm going to try and apply myself. That's what my, my life, I'm trying to do that. And it's a, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not something I'm likely to succeed at, you know, being one of the greats, but my God, it's fun having a go. Yeah. Oh, and we're, we're enjoying it enormously uh, on the journey with you. Don't worry about that. Jimmy, thanks so much for your time. Really looking forward to the tour next year. Oh, in absolute Australia. pleasure. Tickets, well, tickets available thank now. Thank you very so much indeed. It's been, uh, it's been well, great. Well, yeah, we put on a bunch of, if people couldn't get tickets, we put on a bunch of extra ones yeah. just to, uh, partly partly for the money, but partly just to fuck with the ticket count. And that unmistakable laugh of yours will be here early in 2023. Brilliant. Take care. Thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Jimmy Carr, uh, check out uh, the social media and uh, get, grab your tickets. It'll be a massive, massive tour. Uh, he's a very funny man. He, if you haven't seen, jump on Netflix and have a look at, uh, at his stuff on Netflix. There's a couple of specials on there. He is, he is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Now, Brian, I've got a bit of a surprise for you. Well, it's I'm not excited, a surprise. Jeff. It's not a surprise because you know um, that this has ha- taken place. But after after months and months and months and years, probably that we've been doing all this stuff, you've always said fifty years. We've always said what a great song it is, but you've always said it deserves to be a sung better by singer. yeah to be sung by someone. Else. I won't say better singer to be sung by. You'd like to hear it sung by someone else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's and been I'm, a lot of we've bandied a lot of names around about who we thought, but someone's done it. Yes, and she's done yes, it brilliantly. Sir. She uh, has. It's fantastic. I love it. So I want to bring her on the program now. Her name is Hayley Jensen. Oh, right. Fantastic. She's a very attractive young girl and a beautiful voice and she's won golden guitars and, oh, she's done it all. Yep, except this show and she's about to do that right now. Hello. Hello, Hayley. How are you going? Hello. How are you doing? 
G'day. Good. G'day. How are you? The rock star legend himself. No, 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 no. Enough about, enough about me, Harley. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, fair enough. Uh, now, you, you two clearly have never met. No. No. But I love what you did with my song. I think you did a great job. Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. And I hear that you never say that. So um, thank you. Well, I've been sure saying. It's been covered a million times over the years. I don't think it has because I've been saying for years, Kev, haven't I? Saying the song deserves a better singer than me. Yep. And oh, finally, that's crazy. It got, finally, it got one. So no, <laughs> I, I, was, I was really, really wrapped when I heard it. And. Um, you know, you, you sort of done your own thing, but it's surprisingly faithful uh, in, in in a lot of respects. In that, um, you know, the things like um, let's talk about it when we're old. I thought, oh yeah, that might get the arse, and no, it's in there. And um, yeah, so I was, I was really I was really delighted when I heard it. I just thought it was, it was, it was bloody great. So well oh. done on that. Oh gosh, it's a magnificent song. I mean, and it's resonated with so many people too. You know, I mean. Um, Yes, from the minute that it kind of got shared, I just had messages flooding my, are you releasing that song? Are you releasing that song? I love that. <laughs> that was my first ever cassette tape of Uncanny X-Men. That was my first ever, you know, like it was such a a monumental song in, and, you know, in, in a lot of people's lives, I think. So, yeah, I'm surprised it hasn't, if if that's what you're saying. I, I uh, yeah, I would yeah, have no. it had been done, done many times and you'd, you know? No, no, I've, that's the first one I've heard. I heard that Casey Chambers did it on a radio show once, which I thought, oh, I'd like to hear Casey Chambers do it, but I, I never did hear it. So anyway, so I was oh. delighted to hear your version. I just thought it was great. And who's the guy playing guitar with you? Uh, so it, the producer is Michael Carpenter. He um, put the, the tracks together and... Um, and what have you, and, and he would have played all the instruments on it. So, yeah, um, mm. wonderful Sydney-based musician and producer, multi-instrumentalist. Um, mm. And we did a few versions of it. Um, yeah. They, the, the, so it was done for a, for a version for the Southern Cross Club for their 50-year anniversary mm. of the club, um, which is coming up this month. And... And they picked the song, and and um, and I listened to it, and straight away, oh, I remember this! I remember this song. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so, which is awesome. And uh, I was, I went back and went, oh, we can do this big anthemic version, you know, make it this huge thing for the club. Yeah. And they went, oh, we want a stripped back version. We want like a really, you know. And I went, oh, okay, well, we'll go. We, I guess we can go that way. I'd never imagined it going that way because of your version of it is just you know, so epic and I, th- I thought it's, it has to be done in that way. So it was pretty clever, I thought, of Michael to reimagine it in, in a bit of a sort of little country-esque ballad. So. Well, when I wrote it, I wrote it on an acoustic guitar. So the, your version isn't that foreign to me because, you to know, when, you. I first started, when I first started yeah. playing it, it was just, you know, a, like a country, you know, acoustic song and then, you know, wow. the producers get to it and... Where you go, but um, and you know when yeah. I play solo, I sort of I play it in G and um, and I just do an acoustic like a country song because it's it's a pretty good country song, I suppose. Well, anyway, yeah, it's it's you know beautiful chords, beautiful melody, beautiful you know like and yeah, it was it was an honour to do it. So thank you very much for allowing me <laughs> allowing me to do oh, it. Thank, and, thank um, you for doing it. 
Yeah, you're going to do so anything yes. with it, Hayley? Is that, is, or is it just going to be uh, the ad? Or Because the version we're going to play is the four-minute version, uh, which strikes me as it should be released or put on an album or something. Yeah, a, few, a lot of people have been saying it. So I, I need to go, go back to my label now and say, well, I'm working on the new album. Maybe <laughs> maybe this could be something that, um, that ends up on it. And, you know, honestly... It, it surprised you know from getting a phone call. Oh yeah, can you just record record a song for an ad? And and I knew that it was an iconic song, and would resonate with people. But the amount of feedback and and again from your posts that you put up on social media, you, you threw me to the wolves a bit there, Brian. <laughs> with everyone saying, "Oh no, yours is the only original." But there were, no, there were no. a lot of, also a lot of lovely comments in there as well. I I think the song needs needs to be heard by generations to come, you know, so it shouldn't be lost in in time. Yeah, well, thank uh, you. And hopefully your version will introduce it to some people who've never heard it, so that's that's a wonderful yeah. thing. So you're going on tour soon? Well, I, I've been touring and I've got a bunch of festivals coming up this year, so, um, you know, the all of the festivals, as, as you would know, all of the live music kind of just got shafted the last few years so there's a bunch of festivals coming up towards you know this this second half of this year which is really really great and um the first half of this year i spent touring my latest album which i released in october last year breaking hearts and it was just amazing to be able to finally get out and play live for people again after you know doing concerts like this to a (laughs) tiny red dot for for a couple of years so yeah. When I when I first went back to work, um, and I was talking to some other musicians, and they said that because they haven't had bands for so long, you seem to be getting an extra twenty percent out of the audience. They're so much more oh. enthused about it, and they seem to be really, really sort of coming back with a vengeance with it. If that's the right way to word it. Hmm. Yeah, I I've, I felt that too. I mean, I think there's still a bunch, a whole lot of. Um, uncertainty, apprehension from from certain people to not want to come out just yet or they're still hesitant and there's issues with people not buying tickets till the bloody last minute and it's it's been a real yeah. a real struggle I think yeah, yeah certainly I'm for independent artists that are kind of back doing it all themselves or even you know the big shows that like what you do you know you can't risk it that people aren't going to turn up but. It's yeah, it's. I, th- I think you're right, and especially when you've had gigs postponed, oh, and yeah. then you know, and then you okay, it's rescheduled, and then it gets postponed again. People just sort of think, oh, this is all too hard, and um, you know, it's it might get postponed again. But I think it's yeah. we're coming out of that now. I think it's sort yep. of my my gigs are starting to sort of lock in, and it's going pretty good. So that's good for yeah. all of us. Yep. So, Hayley, you mentioned you, you released the album, uh, your latest album in October, and you're already working on stuff for the for the next oh, one, yeah. are you? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, mind you, that album was due to be released in June or July last year. Oh, okay. And because I couldn't tour, we... We held off and released another single and another single and then it was before we knew it, it was like five singles have been released from this album before it's even been launched itself, which was kind of good in a way. Once we finally did, people knew the songs, they knew what they were getting and there was going to be a whole other five songs on there or what have you, but 
it kind of, you know, you have all these great plans about what you're going to do and get out there and, and tour and get the sales happening and then it's like, okay. And then we sort of came around. I rescheduled this tour three or four times and by the time October came around, I thought I'm just going to have to release this album. It's just if I put it off now until next this this year, mm. it's just going to be, you know, it's like I'm getting bloody sick of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, just so, want to get these songs out to people. So, so when you release yeah. a single, is it a big like when Brian released Fifty Years as a single? You know, with the Uncanny yeah. X Men back then, it's like an event. I mean, that's like a big yeah. thing. Here's the single. Oh, here's the, and to go to the radio yeah. station and all that sort of stuff. What releasing a single now is is what really? Oh, look, I think it depends what maybe what genre you're in and all that sort of stuff. In country, people still love an album. People still love, you know, they still buy CDs, yep. you know. It's yep. it's kind of a – and even if they don't have a CD player, they'll buy the CD, you know. They're buying vinyls and, and all sorts of stuff now too. And, but around singles, um, yeah, I mean, my aim always is to try to make it as big of an event as I possibly can, whatever that, you know, looks like, whether it's – creating a whole different versions of it, acoustic versions, videos, and it's all that extra content that goes around it and, and things that you do. I mean, there's there's a, there's a bunch of country radio stations in Australia, so yep. there's, there is the radio circuit that sort of happens, um, less so in person, particularly these days with, you know, everything going on. But um, In fact, you're probably yeah. better placed as a country artist than a than a pop singer or a, or a, a heavy metal because there aren't heavy metal radio stations but at least there are country stations around it. Yeah, there's it's a it's a really amazing sort of little sub industry all in itself. And it's all about the songs and the stories and the melodies and the you know and I I love it. There's there's radio, there's festivals, there's a loyal fan base. There's still a bit of a stigma attached to it, which is probably, you know, I spent a lot of my earlier, been doing this for about 20 years, earlier years trying to do the pop thing, you know, and trying to be a pop artist because that was kind of where everyone thought that you'd made it if you were kind of doing that and everybody kept telling me, go and do country, go do country. I'm not John Williams. I don't write songs like John Williamson and I'm like, what are you trying to say about me? I mean, I, wonderful songwriters, storytellers, artists, you know, but certainly so I think over the last 20 years or so the genre has developed, it's expanded out. There's a lot more rock influence. There's a lot more pop. It's sexier. It's a sexier, it's a sexier uh, genre of music now. Yeah, I think I think it's just more accessible. Like yeah. people, you don't hear it and straight away go, "Oh, that's an old Dinky Die country song anymore." You know, what I mean, and there's there's I think there's a spectrum now, um, particularly with American country. And I'm doing a lot of work with Canadian country artists and writers and producers, and and I think there's just a whole lot of different. Even in the UK, you know, and it was funny, I went over there and went, oh, I didn't think there'd be any country music in, in uh, you know, the UK. And they're like, well, we didn't think there'd be any country music in Australia. <laughs> and, and it's like, so it's, um, it's yeah, it's a, it's a growing genre and it's sort of still finding its finding its feet, I think. Yeah. But, yeah. Steve Tyler from Aerosmith recorded a country album a year or so yes. ago. And he, the reason he did it, because he felt that, Country was closer to rock and roll than anything that's being made today. 
And I think there's a lot of truth in that. That, you know, rock and roll is essentially blues and country sort of mixed together, I guess. Yes. And, um, and one of the things I like about country is that, you know, you mentioned storytelling. And, you know, country songs, a lot of them have some great stories. And and I think that a lot of songs today, they, they don't write stories anymore. They write, you know, I was with you and you broke my heart, now I'm sad and, you know, it's all about my emotions and blah, 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 blah which is okay, that's all right, but I miss the, you know, things where they tell me a story, like, you know, yeah. My Elusive Dreams by Tom Jones, you know, that guy's a loser, but I love listening to the story. <laughs> and, um, you know, from a jack to a king and, you know, all of those old ones, uh, you know, King of the Road, I just think there's great little stories in them. And, yeah, um, there's a twist yeah. and it keeps you so, sort of hanging on the line, yeah. Yeah. What, what do you like best? Do you like playing live or recording or writing or just singing? What's, what's your favourite part of it? Yeah. I, I think it has to be playing live. I'm back. I'm writing again at the moment, and I love it. I love it all, you know. But I think ultimately it's the performing part. And I think the last album that I did, because I had to record it here at home in in my little home studio, because we weren't allowed anywhere. Yeah. I'd have to close my eyes and imagine that I was singing it to an audience. And I think that's probably delivered the better vocal performance on this record than any other of my albums because I actually had it with an end goal in mind of of playing it live and people sitting there listening to it uh, at a festival or, or a massive show or something, you know. Mm. So I think it's, it'd have to be that performing and connecting with people in, you know, looking at and seeing people's faces and how they're responding to the, to the music and the story and the songs and, and what have you. I do. I love writing. I do love writing. It's frustrating, <laughs> you know, like it can be, it can be like, uh, you know, I feel like it's a puzzle so often, you know, and, and it's finding all those right pieces. And, but when you, when it's finished, it's like, oh my gosh, we've just created this thing out of nothing. Like just this didn't exist before today. That's pretty, pretty cool. I have yeah. one. I have one question to finish us off, and and we want to thank you for being on the on the show and and that. But Brian and I know the answer for us personally to this question. But I've got to ask you: Where would you be in fifty years? <laughs> <laughs> oh, good God! Brian and I don't oh, know where we'll be in fifty 40. minutes, let alone fifty years. <laughs> I'll be yeah. I'll be pretty bloody close to the grave, I reckon. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, to I, mean, from there. I, I would love to say uh, <laughs> that I'll be. I'd still love to be performing <laughs> at the <laughs> age of eighty nine. But <laughs> well, won't you be at the Canberra Services Club? Uh, you know, knocking out uh, know. another another set. <laughs> exactly right. Sit me in the corner. I'll, yeah, absolutely. Prop uh, me up. <laughs> lean on your doing that. frame. Yeah, that's it. Oh, I'll be doing it for. I'll I'll be singing for as long as I can, as long as people care to listen, and probably beyond that as well. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Hey, good on your terrific version of uh, of the song. Uh, we, we love thank it. We, we're going to play the the long version of it now. But thank you so much for being thank on the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, Thanks, thank you for having me. Thanks, Brian. Oh, Absolute I have to pleasure. say, my mm. my my cousin Matthew. I I promised that I'd put in a um a big. A big shout out to him because he was, uh, and he's a number one fan. Obviously, when I when I recorded that version, I got this big long text message about 
his being the first cassette he'd ever had and how much of a rock star you were and how proud he was <laughs> that I was associating with such rock stars. So um, <laughs> they'll, all be, they'll be very chuffed that I'm on your podcast here oh, today. Good <laughs> Thank you. Well, good good on you, Matthew. Well done, mate. Thanks, Hayley. Thanks, Thanks Hayley. Take Thank care. You. Cheers. All right, okay. so that's uh, that's Hayley Jensen. Uh, now we're going to play that version of the song. This is the long version of the song. There's obviously a version that goes with the ad that's a short version, but this is the long version of the song with Hayley doing backup vocals, some sly guitar, and it's it's a really lovely version of the song. It's a great version of the song. It's, um, you know, it's not overproduced. It sort of lets Hayley's voice do the work and um, the music's very complimentary and it's sort of – everything's got a nice – place yeah you know it's not it's not too busy or anything it's just i think you know they've taken the right approach and um and you know as i said you know i think this is a great version of the song and um i'm so wrapped that somebody's finally done it absolutely so before we play that uh, thanks to russell hitchcock and jimmy carr for being on the show both of those are touring uh, air supply course touring and jimmy's doing his stand-up tour so make sure you check out all the details on those and grab some tickets to see them live and uh, if you get the chance to see Haley live uh, she'll probably perform this as as part of a show who knows uh, well i so, hope so thank you mr mannix uh, take care and we'll uh, we'll see you on the next edition we've got normie row coming up we've got ronnie charles coming up we've got the thompson twins on the way lots hey. coming up in uh, future oh. episodes but now sit back relax and enjoy Haley jensen 50 years Go, Hayley, you beauty! It's nearly time we were leaving We'll have one more for the road It don't mean nothing It don't mean nothing So we gather round the table Raise our champagne in the air There ain't no need to cry It don't mean nothing It don't mean nothing Cause we've got this night together We'll have here now forever Don't tell me
Yeah. 